0: I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center. And this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schram's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today. What we can learn from them and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. We're going to be talking today about one of the most consequential presidents in American history, and what lessons we can learn from President Abraham Lincoln. I think uh, we need some of that wisdom to face the problems and the challenges that our country is dealing with today, and what better person to learn from than Abraham Lincoln. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm Jeff Sikinga, the executive director of the Ashbrook Center. The Ashbrook Center, as many of you, I'm sure, do know, is an independent educational center located at Ashland University in Ashland, Ohio. We run programs here at the university, but also programs across the country for students, teachers and citizens. It's our mission to help educate our fellow Americans in the history and principles of America. And we hope in the habits of reflection and choice that we think are necessary to perpetuate our republic. That's what we're about here at at Ashbrook, that kind of educational mission, which we think is vital to the future of self-government in this country. Uh, This webinar is a part of our mission uh, to educate our fellow Americans. And we want to welcome those of you who are joining us today as part of that mission, a special welcome to teachers joining us through Teaching American History uh, programs. We really appreciate you taking the time to be with us as well today. Uh, We really believe as an educational center that education is not simply about information, definitely not about indoctrination, but about discovering the truth for yourself. And we firmly believe um, and base all our programs really on the old maxim of Aristotle, that all human beings by nature desire to know. And then we add, but they don't want to be told. They want to discover it for themselves, and that's what we're here today to do, to discover some truth and some insight that we hope can be helpful to us. We really believe also at Ashbrook that that discovery happens best through conversation. So we want to invite you into the conversation today. That's the core of what we do, and we want to invite you into that today through the question and answer, the Q&A function, Um, and please feel free to send your questions. I know And I always say in advance, we're going to have a lot of questions, I'm sure. Try to get to as many as possible. Sometimes we don't get to them all. And my apologies in advance if we don't happen to get to yours. But we'll certainly try to as much as possible. Today's conversation, I'm delighted to note I'll be joined by Professor Lucas Morell. Many of you know Lucas. He is an old friend, meaning a long time ago but not old, long-time friend (laughs) of the Ashbrook Center. He is professor of politics and head of the politics department at Washington and Lee University in Virginia. He and I were just chatting about the fact that now he's come back to be the head of the politics department after a sabbatical and has to be a busy administrator and executive now, and not just a professor. (laughs) He has his bachelor's from Claremont McKenna College, his master and PhD from the Claremont Graduate University. At Washington and Lee, he teaches uh, a really interesting variety of courses. He teaches courses on American government and politics, on political thought, constitutional law, and politics and literature. He also happens to teach for us in our Master of Arts in American History and Government program. And it does many, many of our Teaching American History seminars and does an absolutely terrific job. Those who've ever experienced Lucas in the classroom know that he is one of the best teachers you will ever encounter. And for us, he teaches classes like Liberty and Equality in American History and Literature. He teaches the Civil War in American Literature. He also teaches classes on Ralph Ellison, the the great American novelist, a class called Race and Equality in America, which I think he's gonna be teaching soon for us. uh, And then also classes in the Civil War era, sectionalism and Civil War, Civil War and Reconstruction. Really covers a wide range of 19th century and 20th century American history and political thought. He's also, besides being a terrific teacher, Lucas is a prolific author. Uh, Just to give you a sample, he's published a number of really wonderful articles and books. But again, just to give you a sample, um, let me recommend to you, Uh, One of his books that he worked on called The New Territory, Ralph Ellison in the 21st Century, a great investigation of the wisdom that the novelist Ralph Ellison offers us today. And of course, a a book that really put his scholarship on the map with Abraham Lincoln called Lincoln's Sacred Effort, Defining Religion's Role in American Self-Government. And then his most recent book, which I happen to have right here, uh, a terrific book called Lincoln and the American Founding. And let me just read you something that uh, Richard Brookheiser, very well-known author, says about this book. He says, Out of Collapse Renewal, Lucas Morell shows how in our darkest hour, Abraham Lincoln drew on our previous darkest hour for inspiration and wisdom. And it's our hope today that we can draw some inspiration and wisdom from Lincoln for our current times. Lucas, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Glad for the invitation, Jeff.
0: Well, Abraham Lincoln, um, it's president's day. We want to honor Abraham Lincoln. Uh, of course, George Washington, two of our greatest presidents. And when we think of Abraham Lincoln and the title for this webinar, it talks about saving America. This is the task obviously that we know that Lincoln faced when he became president. But we, when we think of Lincoln saving America, we usually think of his political and military leadership during the Civil War, Mm -hmm. keeping the Union together, winning the war. But you've argued and made a very interesting argument that Lincoln didn't think of the crisis before and during the Civil War as primarily or essentially a political or even military crisis. But he saw it as essentially a kind of... um, Crisis in Americans' Understanding of America and the Moral Principles That Ought to Guide This Country. That's a really interesting way to think about uh, Lincoln and a thing to think about on this President's Day. Let me ask you this to start with then. According to Lincoln, what was the crisis that America faced in his lifetime?
1: No, thank you. I mean, that is uh, the question to ask of Lincoln, especially given how surprising his rise to the presidency was. I mean, this is someone who is essentially self-taught, barely went to school for maybe in the aggregate 12 months, has uh, practiced as a lawyer, but never went to law school, (laughs) didn't go to college, high school, and most of elementary school for that matter. Uh, So very surprising that someone from a hardscrabble scrabble. Uh, existence uh, out in the frontier. What was the frontier at the time? Illinois, of course, born in Kentucky, raised a bit in Indiana. But I mean, it, he his rise to the presidency is is, I mean, only in America could that have happened. And even then, the odds were pretty tough. Uh, But so what I like to focus on, and I'm teaching a class right now called Lincoln Statesmanship at Washington and Lee University, I like to focus on Lincoln as an engaged, what we like to call today an engaged citizen. Lincoln didn't wait to become president or even to hold political office before he was trying to uh, continue and inform the conversation that he was having with fellow citizens about the kind of country he was raised in and when he thought it was, if you will, going off the rails. And so in terms of the crisis that led to, uh, eventually to his election to the presidency and then in in, in the ensuing civil war, um, it was really a crisis of identity. Um, We were becoming divided as to what really was the meaning of America and therefore how our political institutions the laws and in particular, the Constitution should be interpreted so as to uh, produce um, uh, the America that people wanted. We were divided in terms of what we were owed, what we deserved under our common, up until that time, our common government. You mentioned Aristotle earlier. Aristotle says that civil wars come from factions and factions don't come from good versus evil. It's really easy. It's too, it's too neat, too simple to say the good guys were for the union, the bad guys were for secession or for rebellion. Aristotle says what typically happens is there is a division over an understanding of justice. And so in fairness, the way the Ashbrook program works, the, the MAG program works in the summers and throughout the year, is I try to make my courses a fair fight. And so a course on Lincoln uh, of course, I've uh, already settled the matter for myself. I think he it was a statesman. I'm not neutral on that. But to make it a fair fight, I have to show what the options were, what the alternatives were, what the, the different understandings of justice, what is it that government owes me as an American, owes me as, say, a black man on American soil. Uh, and when we look at those uh, debates um, and our country's development was the product of debate, We see that by the time 1860 rolls around, there are distinct uh, differences in terms of how people in America define justice. And that's what led to the split in the country. And Lincoln was doing what he could to reclaim what he believed was an older understanding. He called it our ancient faith. Um, He was trying to get people, as he put it, to re-adopt in, as early as 1854, he was saying we need to readopt the Declaration of Independence, both in its principles and its practices. Only then could we have a common understanding of what we are owed under our common government, which he believed ultimately should lead to the eradication of slavery.
0: So that's a really interesting uh, point that you're making because you call it a crisis of identity. Yeah. Um, a crisis in understanding who we are as Americans and what is right and what is wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, when did that crisis start? Yeah. <laughs> at
1: least in
0: Lincoln's, at least in Lincoln's. Right, right, right. Uh, um,
1: I would say um, in a concerted uh, Lincoln, he served one term in Congress in 1847, 1849, which proved to be a pivotal point in our nation's history. He, he entered Congress at a time when when the war with Mexico was all but over. It was wrapping up, uh, Lincoln made a fairly fiery uh, speech condemning the president of the United States, James Polk, for beginning what he thought was an unjust and unconstitutional war with Mexico. But he always supported the troops in terms of financially supporting them during the war. Once in it, you gotta uh, be in it to win it as it were. Uh, But that pivotal moment was a moment where the country all of a sudden had to decide, huh, is the future going to be a future without slavery and therefore ought Congress to make sure slavery didn't enter that new territory that we would be gaining as a result of that war? Or um, uh, should we be neutral on the question of the spread of slavery uh, as his great rival and actually the leading politician of that entire decade? the 1850s, which was his Illinois rival, Senator Stephen A. Douglas. So when did the crisis begin? Certainly as early as Lincoln, um, uh, for Lincoln in the 1850s. 1850, in fact, was a time when secession was being threatened by a good number of Deep South slaveholding states. They actually held a convention in Chattanooga in 1850.
0: So, So what's going on? So the crisis is are we going to still define ourselves by the political and moral principles of the declaration of independence? Right. And you're saying by the time, even a decade before the civil war in 1850, yes. some people are saying, no, we yeah. should, not and we need to go our own separate way. W- what's happening in 1850? Well,
1: in 1850, of course, this follows, uh, if I get my math right, 1848 and 49, when of course in California, gold is discovered and California, the population increases so quickly that they, if you will, bypass the territorial governance uh, phase, which typically uh, uh, is the serves as the prelude to becoming a state. Southern states were upset about that because they wanted a chance to turn California into a slave state. Uh, they didn't get that chance, and believe it or not, in 1860 and 61, they bring that up. They still remember not getting a chance to uh, uh, to plant their stake in that uh, uh, far off Western country called California. But in 1850, of course, we have to determine the territorial status of slavery in Utah and New Mexico. And um, we're also debating whether the slave trade, not slavery, but the slave trade in the District of Columbia, the capital of the nation, should that continue? Uh, We're thinking about what to do with Texas. They've got this huge debt as a result of being annexed by the United States, about $10 million. And also, you think everything's big in Texas now? It was bigger in 1849 (laughs) and 1850. And so they eventually create the panhandle. And then also complaints about the Fugitive Slave Act, which dates back all the way to 1793, Required by the Constitution, one of the compromises with slavery, Southerners are complaining that there's not enough uh, legal bite into the constitutional teeth of that clause. And so they are basically not suing, but they are lobbying for a strengthened Fugitive Slave Act, which they get. So these measures, which we know as the Compromise Measures of 1850, that essentially postpones, if you will, secession and civil war for another 10 years. Everybody got a little bit of what they wanted and who masterminded the measures? Stephen Douglas, not Henry Clay, who tried to do it all in one omnibus as we call it, one single bill, that fails because you couldn't get a majority for all of that. Stephen Douglas in the Senate marshals different majorities to pass different parts of those compromise measures. Uh, But honestly, Jeff, if, if you wanna know the seeds of secession, the seeds, Uh, It goes even back further, further than the nullification crisis, the tariff crisis of 1828 to 1832, as early as 1820, when Maine is uh, petitioning to come in as a free state and Missouri with several thousand slaves is wanting to come in as a slave territory and then slave state as early as that, as early as 1820, we see the fissure, uh, the chasm uh, growing Um, that will eventually uh, produce what John Calhoun says in 1837 is a positive, good approach to slavery. We no longer consider it, as we say today, a necessary evil, something we identify as morally wrong. But for political reasons, federalism being one of the uh, obstacles, for political reasons, we can't get rid of it right away Um, as early as 1820 we're already battling over whether or not we really are going to follow through with our moral obligation to get rid of slavery.
0: Okay, so that's very interesting. That means that what you're arguing is coming out of the founding as Lincoln saw it, coming out of 1776, the principles of the Declaration of Independence embodied in the Constitution, Lincoln's argument is American, the American mind, as Thomas Jefferson called it, right. believed that slavery was wrong and that, but it had to be tolerated where it existed. But then, and, and that was kind of the moral framework for thinking in Lincoln's mind of of the founding generation and right succeeding it. But then in 1820, we start to have political conflicts about, okay, so how much do we need to tolerate? And then engage the people start engaging in horse trading a little bit, political Mm -hmm. compromise to say, to say, well, let's keep the basic principle that slavery is wrong, but will be tolerated Let's keep that as the framework, but make some compromises within that framework. But then you just said something very interesting. John C. Calhoun, who I think had been uh, vice president, right, under Andrew Jackson, um, starts to make an argument, him among others, that in fact, that's the wrong way of looking at the slavery issue. Tell us a little bit more about that change in thinking, because that seems to me to go right to the heart of the crisis as Lincoln understood it.
1: Yeah, um, uh, Calhoun famously says it's not not only not a uh, necessary evil, but a positive good. He says that in 1837 on the floor of the Senate. Um, but uh, the Missouri Compromise, of course, was in 1820, dealing with the, the only territory that was left over from the Louisiana Purchase at that time. Missouri comes in as a slave state, but this vast amount of territory that will produce four or five states, including Illinois, Uh, Lincoln's eventually his eventual adopted state, Um, all of that territory. They uh, in Article six, a a draft of which was Jefferson's uh, uh, Jefferson originally um, uh, drafted. um, Oh, I'm I'm combining things. Sorry about that. I was thinking about the Northwest Territory. Uh, But uh, in 1820, the leftover territory from Louisiana, four or five states are going to come of that. And Congress says we don't want slavery to go in there. We'll let Missouri come in but we're not gonna let slavery into territories. Well, why would you prevent that? Because the assumption was, if slavery is kept out of that territory, it's very likely (laughs) that slavery will not go into it once it comes in and submits a constitution uh, to be a state. So at that point in time, it still seemed like uh, most of the country was leaning towards uh, liberty, as it were. In other words, that the future was not indifference regarding slavery, was not uh, endorsement of slavery, the future was freedom in this country, Uh, but by by 1820 and even decades earlier, what happened after the invention of the cotton gin, a technological innovation, if you can believe that crude machine was technological innovation, but as a result of that, something the founders could not anticipate or expect, um, it became extremely lucrative to mass produce cotton now that you could pull the wool that's usable away from the seeds and the stems and all the stuff that you can't use. And so in the South, they started churning over vast amounts of land away from hemp and um, indigo and rice and put it into this bumper crop of cotton that they could sell as a raw good abroad. And as I say, it was an extremely lucrative crop. And so they had to decide, um, should we change our practice to align with our founding principle or change our interpretation of that principle to align with our practice. And in this case, um, as Lincoln put it, uh, uh, the, the truths of the declaration could not be seen through a gold eagle. In other words, it became just too financially profitable to continue the practice of slavery. And therefore, they started making an argument against what their consciences themselves told them, which was that it was wrong. Um, It was not God ordained. It was not natural for one human being to uh, enslave another uh, that you would. The American way was we were committed to a government by consent of the government.
0: So the the moral principles starts to they can't live with the contradiction anymore between the practice and the principle as the practice grows and the love of money (laughs) takes hold and corrupts in this way. So the yes. print, they start changing the principle, as you say, to accommodate the practice of slavery. And then you have uh, political figures like John C. Calhoun, oh, then not just do it, changing it in practice, but openly articulating that in principle. Right. Then you have a real division in the American mind between, well, is slavery wrong or is slavery right? And there's people starting to say, no, it's actually right. Then you mentioned though Lincoln's term in Congress and the the fight then over is slavery right or wrong should slavery be permitted tolerated encouraged or should it be restricted, starts to spill out into the western territories as you right. say uh, across the a span of three decades, we get to the we get past and it's held together the country is by these compromises mm-hmm. of 1850 for example. Lincoln left Congress uh, after that one term as we know. But then he comes back into public life in 1854 because yes. he thinks there's another crisis, maybe even more severe. Help our listeners understand what's that crisis as he understands it.
1: Yeah, and I would actually connect it. Uh, if we're going to look at it as an as another crisis, it's a crisis that actually grows out of this, uh, as we like to say today, uh, binary between slavery being a uh, necessary evil or no. It's actually a positive good, and when we we haven't said. Positive good, Calhoun said it was actually good for the slave. Uh, and, and, and for that, he meaning good for enslaved Black people, he said it's not just the master exploiting the slave. There's no exploitation. The, it's win-win for the mastering class, which was white, as well as the mastered or enslaved class, which was Black. They thought they figured it out in the South. Cradle to grave welfare. Uh, for those who are enslaved, what's to complain about? Well, what grows out of that is... Douglas's, if you will, leadership of the country as the leading Democrat and, and as well the leading politician of throughout the decade of the 1850s. Douglas was in Congress in 1850 when crisis was averted. He is not explicitly in favor of slavery, but he is not going to categorize himself as an abolitionist or even as, as, as even ostensibly anti-slavery. He thinks that the way to preserve union is to be explicitly neutral at the national level in Congress with regards to the spread of the enslavement of black people. So what does he do in 1854? Territory that Congress way back in 1820 said, slavery shall not enter. He takes territory known as the Nebraska Territory and he splits it into two states, Kansas being the Southern, Nebraska being the Northern Territory. And he says, hey Congress, you know what we ought to do? follow our example in Utah New Mexico. Let's not endorse slavery. Let's not condemn it. Let the locals decide. And that's what he meant when he said, let the people decide. And he says, as a senator from Illinois, I don't care. This is what Lincoln called the don't care policy. I don't care what they do in Kansas, but I will fight to the, to the death to make sure Kansans determine for themselves whether they can use slavery or not. And of course, that was based on the premise of white supremacy. He was explicit about this country being founded by whites, for whites, forever. He was a prototype of George Wallace, not segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. It was slavery or, uh, uh, well, not slavery. It was a white country for white people. And what they do with black people, let the locals decide. If they want to enslave them, fine. If they want to give them the vote, that's crazy what they're doing in New York, but they can make that decision. In Illinois, we don't make them slaves, but we certainly don't let them vote. Let Kansans do that. Let Nebraskans do that. And so, what Lincoln saw was, wait a second. And this is what brings him back into politics. Are you telling me we are now? Go- we don't know that slavery is wrong anymore. Are you telling me we don't even know, even as white people, what the true grounds of our own rights, privileges, civil rights, and political are? Are you telling me that now we think our rights are based on our race and not our humanity? even that fundamental thing we share with the despised race in America, which was the black race. Hold on. This country is becoming something I don't recognize anymore. So here is the key. Lincoln begins referring to this policy of Stephen Douglas, neutral with regards to the spread of of racial slavery. He says it's insidious. That's his word. Insidious. Why insidious? Because you don't have to make an argument for slavery to produce its spread. Just teach white people, not in the South. That's not where the debate is. The fight is in the North. Teach whites who reside in free states, hey, don't look behind the curtain. Don't pay attention to what's happening in Oregon or the territory of Nebraska or the territory of Kansas. If they want to enslave Black people, totally up to them. What skin off of your nose is it in Illinois? He's trying to teach white Americans in free states not to care. What happens to the rest of that country that will eventually become states, part of the union? It's insidious because nobody has to stand up full-throated like Jeff Davis, as Lincoln put it, and say, we think racial slavery is a good Lincoln says, wake up, white people, don't acquiesce, don't go along, let's insist that Congress not only has the authority to prevent slavery from going into the territories, they have a duty to exercise it.
0: Wow. So Lincoln faces a situation where uh, the crisis in many ways is not slavery is wrong versus slavery is right, as you say, but slavery is we don't care. We don't have to make a a moral judgment. He says, keep, Stephen Douglas is trying to say, to keep the country together, we need to keep the morality of the issue out of it. Yes. And I'm going to assume that that was, we think today, obviously, of slavery as a grave moral evil, as a terrible injustice, as a horrible system. But my suspicion is that in the 1850s, there's probably a lot of people who want to hear what Stephen Douglas is saying.
1: It makes it easier for them, especially in uh, areas, i.e. most of the United States, where they don't have to, um, they don't think they have skin in the game. They don't think that they have to uh, make a decision. It's easier for such a controversial um, issue, what Lincoln called the great behemoth of danger, racial slavery. It's easy for the majority of the white population in the United States, again, to become indifferent and just wash their hands of it and just let it Take it off the national table. Let's not have the agitation over slavery, keeping us from doing more important things for the common good. Let the locals decide, thinking that it won't have an impact on their own security of rights. And that's what Lincoln had to do. Some some, some commentators say, well, boy, we wish Lincoln would say more about how bad slavery was for the enslaved. Why does he keep talking about it from the perspective of his white audience, his white voters? Because remember in Illinois, Free state though it was, Blacks had no political rights. They couldn't vote and very few civil rights. And there weren't that many of them, 6, seven 7,000 by the time the 1860 rolls around. People are saying, why don't we see more from Lincoln in terms of his sympathy for Black people? And the reason why is he had to persuade those who could vote to vote properly. And that's why his emphasis is less on what enslavement is doing to the enslaved and more on what it's doing to the self-understanding of the white population what do they think is the basis of their rights and therefore the future security of those rights under this thing we call self-government if they start tying it to race or intelligence or some other incidental uh, aspect of the human condition lincoln said we have simply replaced one form of masters great britain under a new one under a new one and you know what that new master is Crude majoritarianism, as our great teacher Harry Jaffa once defined popular sovereignty. If we start saying, well, as long as you vote for it, that's justice. What happened to the rights of the individual? Today, it's, as they put it at the time, it's Negroes we're enslaving. Tomorrow, it will be foreigners. The day after that, Catholics. In other words, we will be teaching ourselves that our rights do not inhere in our humanity. They simply inhere on who's got the numbers. Count the noses. And if you're in the majority, Your life is keen, but I sure hope you don't find yourself in the minority. Lincoln says that's not the American way of life.
0: That's what I was going to ask you about. How does Lincoln try to address this crisis after 1854 and beyond? How does he try to do this? He's got to maintain, on the one hand, his principled commitment to the ideals of the American founding and say, look, everyone really is, everyone, black or white, really is created by God free and should be able to keep the fruits of their labor. So slavery yes. is stealing uh, from people, not just enslaving, it is enslaving, but also stealing, of course. So mm-hmm. it's a violation of their God-given rights. He has to keep that moral principle alive. But look, I mean, today we, we praise abolitionists like Frederick Douglass, uh, even William Lloyd Garrison. But <laughs> that was the to be identified in the 1850s, for Abraham Lincoln to have been identified as, as an abolitionist would have been the kiss of death. Yes. So how does, he, how does he maintain that moral opposition to slavery without being pigeonholed as a crazy abolitionist who no one will listen to?
1: Yeah, and I guess we should say a little more about why it is that uh, abolitionists were seen as crazy or fanatical. Yeah, that's right, or, Particularly extreme. for us
0: today who think abolition. I would have been an abolitionist. Everybody's easy, yeah.
1: easy to say that. Uh, yeah. yeah, how strongly are you against uh, slavery? Are you moderately against it or are you extremely? I, for one, am extremely against slavery. But at the time, to be extremely against slavery meant that, and this was a statement uh, made by John Quincy Adams, let justice... Uh, what, let, let justice happen, though the heavens fall, or something to that effect. Um, and for mo- for many abolitionists, you, meant, you mentioned William Lloyd Garrison, especially Garrison, Wendell Phillips, and others, they thought that uh, you know they weren't worried about how; they were only worried about what. In other words, slavery was so bad that even um, uh, measures that subverted our respect for the Constitution would be legitimate. They didn't care about abiding by laws, like the Fugitive Slave Act. And so Lincoln said, no, 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 in this country, the how is um, a close second to the what. Equality is the end, the protection of the rights of all, whether you're in the majority or the minority. But consent, if you will, is the flip side of the equality coin precisely because all men are created equal, you cannot compel, you cannot command, you cannot legislate for people without asking their permission first. The abolitionists paid short shrift to consent. And if you will, Stephen Douglas paid short shrift to equality. He was a white supremacist. Lincoln was there to say, hey, we need both. You can't have equality without consent. You can't have consent without equality. They were trying to split the difference. And so Lincoln thought, we've got to maintain our commitment to not just our principles, equality, individual rights, we have to maintain our commitment to institutions that are the best way to, to produce a deliberate, uh, to have a deliberate pursuit of the common good. We've got to use the constitution. In other words, we have to use mechanisms that yes, slow down the pursuit of justice, but in so doing we prevent tyrannical abuses of power. And so for Lincoln, he was categorically anti-slavery, but he was not willing to identify himself with the anti-slavery folks who were dismissive of the Constitution and therefore he was committed to the Constitution. For example, in 1854, um, William Lloyd Garrison burned a copy of the Constitution in public (laughs) <laughs> you he don't do copy that. Of the constitution. Yeah, you don't do that. What that is telling people is, we don't care how we get justice. As long as justice occurs, um, yesterday is too slow for us. And Lincoln said, no, 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 no. Um, institutions are important. The deliberate processes by which a constitution creates a forum for discussion, debate and ultimately determining how we should proceed forward. That's part of the American way too. And so uh, in his earliest, best, uh, greatest speech, the Lyceum Address of 1838, he's still in the state house at the time. He thinks that this growing vigilante pursuit of justice is a problem in America, what he called mobocracy or mob rule, where people didn't think going to court and proving your case and providing evidence to a jury of your peers was fast enough to produce justice. Lincoln says, that's a problem for this country. Um, And over the long haul, that would undermine our respect for the very institutions that we need to secure, to be secure in the rights that God gives us by nature.
0: So he says, we need to pursue justice. The abolitionists are right in that respect, but we have to do it through the rule of law. Through the rule of law, absolutely. And the constitution. Um, How does he look, he has to travel. I'm thinking of 1858, for example, the crisis goes on, right? We have the Dred Scott decision in 1857. And the Supreme Court said, you know, essentially thought this will solve the crisis. (laughs) In fact, what does it
1: do? It it exacerbates the crisis, of course. Um, And the problem is our attempts to compromise. Notice they're coming quicker and quicker, right? We had the 1820 Compromise, and then it was about a decade and a half we had, <clears throat> short of that, we had the, the, the crisis over the tariffs, 1828 to 1832. But then we've got this lull, but the lull of course is disrupted by a war with Mexico. So bang, 1850. But then it's only four years till we have a situation where the country is asking itself, what is the future of this country in terms of freedom and slavery? Douglas says, don't express an opinion, let the locals decide. OK, in other words, the majority of the country, the vast majority doesn't get to have a say as to what the character of Utah, New Mexico is going to be going forward. And then it's only three years until the Dred Scott case, which notoriously rules that right black people didn't have rights, that the white man was bound to respect, that if you were black in this country, you weren't considered American. You could not sue in a federal court. And therefore, uh, uh, Dred Scott and his family remain enslaved. Uh, and so Lincoln is thinking, boy, all of these attempts to try to resolve the crisis aren't resolving them. They're probably not getting resolved because they're not following what he believes the, the best way to produce compromise, which is in favor of the principle of freedom. And that is falling by the wayside. He points out a very uh, a poignant fact about American history. Were there ever slave states that became free? Yes, yes. But the only time that happened was right at the time of the founding. Six, well, or, seven, we, we, six or seven. I think we sometimes
0: forget that, right?
1: Yeah, six or seven of the original 13 colonies turned states. They eventually banned slavery of their own accord, according to their own constitution and laws. Uh, Lincoln points out in the 1850s, when was the last time that happened? He says, this is why it's so important not to let slavery into a territory, because it turns out once slavery goes in, it never gets gotten rid of. That's why it's important that we not remain neutral about what happens in Kansas, Nebraska. You might think, well, wh- well where were you, Lincoln, when uh, Utah New Mexico were being considered? Well, he wasn't in Congress, but he, he thought enough was done in favor of freedom in 1850 to preserve union. We got the slave trade banned um, in the District of Columbia. Um, the size of Texas was uh, shrunk, <laughs> if you can believe it. Um, I'm forgetting the other elements of, of it. At least slavery wasn't um, expressly endorsed in Utah and New Mexico, but the, the short version is Lincoln. We don't hear any complaints from Lincoln in 1850, 51 about the, the the consequences of the compromise measures of 1850. He thought, well, if that's going to keep the union together, all right, we're, 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 we've survived no civil war, no secession. Let's see how these things pan out. What happened? Douglas claims that a new principle has been enunciated at the national level. In 1854. he justifies going back on Missouri Compromise, repealing the Missouri Compromise and allowing slavery into Kansas and Nebraska. If the locals want it. At that point, Lincoln says, "Oh, what I thought was settled in 1850 apparently wasn't. This is not. This is becoming a country that is becoming neutral with regards to slavery. No, sir." that will actually produce the nationalization of slavery in this country. I want in on this fight and he, he's not gonna go down without at least a rhetorical fight. And it turns out without a physical fight come 1861.
0: And, and what uh, people like Stephen A. Douglas thought had been settled in 1854, which is let's just adopt a policy of don't care. The Supreme yes. Court in 1857 and Dred Scott seems to say, no, we're gonna say the American founders were in favor of slavery. We as a country um, need to follow that example. Now Lincoln says that's a wrong interpretation of the founders, but they right. say this is the, so there you have a right to slavery in the Western territories. The crisis sort of takes off, right? After 1858, and it's almost like you, you, you have, the Supreme Court is forcing people to t- choose a side. Slavery is right, slavery is wrong, and they say, no, slavery is right, and it, you have a right to it in the Western territories. How does Lincoln react To the Dred Scott decision.
1: Right. And this is a delicate matter because on the one hand, you just mentioned it earlier. You summed it up by saying, but Lincoln's a rule of law guy. (laughs) We want our government to be ruled by um, uh, reason, by deliberation. That's what law represents, something fixed, something that isn't, if you will, what I'm doing right now. Passionate! You know, blood, visceral, gut you know, emotion. No, we don't want our government the product of emotion, the product of mobs. We want it the product of slowing it down. Let's calm down. Let's get the evidence. Let's make this. Let's make room for reason to operate. That's what we mean by consent. Um, how does he respond to Dred Scott? The delicate thing is, Lincoln's the rule of law guy, but the Supreme Court, by a seven-to-two decision, has said blacks don't have any rights. The white man is bound to respect and. He ties that to saying, oh, and by the way, what Congress did in 1820, banning slavery in the rest of the Louisiana Purchase territory besides Missouri, they didn't have authority to do that. Congress acted unconstitutionally. Lincoln says, "Uh, we Republicans have coalesced around that one policy, which is slavery should not enter territories. Taney just ruled Republicans out of the game. This new party that formed uh, sort of in 1854, but especially by 1856, Lincoln is now calling himself a Republican. That party now has no reason for being, according to Chief Justice Roger Taney. Lincoln says we can't take that line down if Americans disagree with their government, regardless of the branch of government, legislature, president, or even the judiciary, the Supreme Court, there should be legal, political constitutional means by which they can get their government to change their mind or they can change their governors, not their government. We're not talking about the violation of rights that are so bad we have to overthrow the regime. He's not counseling that. We're not revolutionaries in that sense. We're not resistance, not my president. Lincoln says American citizens who disagree, even with the highest tribunal of the land in terms of the judiciary, they can get the court to try to change its mind. And so in the following year, in his debates with Stephen Douglas, he says, if I'm appointed to the Senate and a bill comes up where Congress decides whether to ban slavery from the territories, even though Dred Scott is still good law, Lincoln says, I'm gonna vote for that law and force the issue to come back onto the court's docket and make them say again, no, we disagree with Congress. We don't think you have that authority. So that's how Lincoln responds. Douglas claims you're being a revolutionary. You're resisting. Everyone should shut up now that the court has ruled. And Lincoln says, if we do that, we're no longer governing ourselves.
0: So the Supreme Court's decision obviously does not solve the crisis. No. We, we, it exacerbates the crisis, as you say. Um, it's not the first. It's not the first or the last time the Supreme Court has done that <laughs> in American life. Right, but Lincoln then, in the 1860, the Democratic Party splits, obviously, and Lincoln is, perhaps to some people's surprise, elected president. I'm wondering, and you've done a lot of work in this in your books and your teaching. How does Lincoln address the moral crisis, not just the political crisis of the split? The secession, but the moral crisis that America faces. How does he address that as president?
1: Well, as president, he continues to make arguments uh, that he made in the 1850s. One thing we need to remember here is Lincoln isn't the only one talking about the founders. In fact, one could characterize his debates throughout the 1850s with Stephen Douglas, not just the famous ones in 1858, one could characterize those debates as precisely debates over how ought we to interpret the founders? Who has the correct, accurate understanding of what they thought they were doing in the Declaration, in its instantiation with the Constitution, and subsequent actions by the first few Congresses? Douglas claims he knew the minds of what he called our revolutionary fathers better than Lincoln. And so when the election of 1860 rolls around, what we really have is a national debate over which party, Northern Democrats, Southern Democrats, or the Republican Party, and then there's the Constitutional Union Party, which was marginal. It's not really important for our purposes. But basically, we have three different interpretations of the founders. And what the American people at that time were being asked to do was choose whose interpretation of the founders was the right one and therefore had the best chance or likelihood of preserving the union and uh, so that that union, that constitution would produce the end, produce justice, produce protection of rights.
0: And if, um, I'm, if I'm hearing you right, the, the three v- views are the Southern Democrats are saying the American founders were pro-slavery. Yes. The Northern Democrats are, were saying the American founders didn't have a moral view on slavery. And Lincoln is saying the American founders were in principle anti-slavery, even if they tolerated the existence of slavery.
1: Right. And so uh, back to your question about uh, how did Lincoln keep principle on the forefront uh, for the country? Um, He did so when he could with regards to what was happening on the ground in the war um, with regards to uh, the role that slavery was being uh, was playing in terms of the confederate. Uh, resistance to federal authority, uh, especially in 1862, measure after measure after measure, Lincoln is taking action as an exe- as the executive, as the, the commander in chief, that shows people that the country that he is defending needs to be in country in favor of freedom, but use legal processes to pursue that result. So in February, he becomes the first and only president to hang a man, to execute a man for violating the, the importation ban, uh, the ban on importing slaves. Uh, Nathaniel Gordon it is, an, is, a, is a notorious case because there were petitions coming in saying, well, Lincoln, you don't have to execute him. You don't have to throw the whole book at him. You can just imprison him for life. And Lincoln refuses to do it. He makes an example of Nathaniel Gordon. He had hundreds of slaves in the ship that was captured, men, women, and especially children because they were easier to manage and control, Lincoln reminds him, in fact, what he does is he postpones the execution for two weeks. Nathaniel Gordon had no idea that he was going to be executed. Nobody had been executed before for this crime. Lincoln gives him two extra weeks so that he can be right, get right with his maker, for, as, we, as we put it, the common God and father of us all. April of 1862, Lincoln signs into law a congressional bill banning slavery, not the slave trade, but slavery, Categorically from the District of Columbia. And then in June, June 19th, not the June 19th, it's not Juneteenth, but June 19th, 1862, Lincoln signs into law a ban against slavery in all federal territories. Wait a second. Didn't the Supreme Court just five years ago say, Congress, you didn't have that authority? That's right. Lincoln didn't get to vote for that bill as a senator because he lost in 58, 59. As president, he signs that bill into law. There you have. A president in Congress saying Congress does have this authority and a Supreme Court where Chief Justice Roger Taney is still on the court. At odds with what the Constitution allows you to do, Uh, September, of course, Lincoln issues his preliminary emancipation proclamation, which he follows through on 100 days later, January 1st. So I really see 1862 as this string of emancipatory pearls that Lincoln is drawing together uh, to remind the country not just why it exists for freedom, not for slavery, but how he does it is important. And so 61 and 62, we see Lincoln emphasizing the rule of law. We see him emphasizing, again, the how, that what's really at stake in the war before it becomes, if you will, an abolition war, it's a war for union, but a war for a union understood as a union that stands for the rule of law on behalf of, Again, a deliberate pursuit of justice.
0: Right. So the union is a union that stands for freedom. As he says, the Declaration of Independence is the apple of gold, quoting the scriptures. And the Constitution is the frame of silver around it. So he says, we're going to pursue freedom and be in favor of freedom as far as the Constitution permits during these wartime conditions. And then, of course, he gives some very famous speeches, speeches like the Gettysburg Address, where he wants to tell his audience and America this is the meaning of the civil war. Are we going to, is the nation of 1776 that was conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, is that nation going to survive and be, have a new birth of freedom through this civil war, right? So his actions and his speeches are pushing all in this direction as right. time goes on. But yeah. we've got a lot of questions uh, coming in oh, now, really. of course. And one of those questions is a really interesting one, which is um, the king's cure, as Lincoln put it, for slavery would be in a constitutional amendment. Correct. When do we? When does Lincoln first start thinking about an amendment to solve the slavery question?
1: Wow, um, it was not the first thing he thought. Um, and the reason we know this is because of other attempts at emancipation that Lincoln tried first. And the fundamental way was to get those states where slavery was legal that were still loyal to the union, Delaware, Missouri, Kentucky, Maryland, to get them and the Congress would loan them the money to adopt at least gradual emancipation plans. Lincoln said, uncontroversial, no one's going to say this is not constitutional. The states can decide whether slavery is legitimate or not totally legit under federal principle. And so he first starts with Delaware in the fall of 1861, and then follows up with appeals to so-called loyal border slave states in March. And then in, um, I believe it's July, when Lincoln says, look, you guys can show show these seceding states that there is no hope you will ever join them by doing this one thing. This one thing that will save us from cutting each other's throats. Lincoln uses that language, cutting each other's throats. He says, you can bring the war to a sooner culmination, a quicker end. If you adopt emancipation plans, they all throw it in his face, as Alan Gelzo, our great friend and teacher, uh, wrote in his book, Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. Lincoln goes through all of those things first. Then he issues the Emancipation Proclamation January 1, 1863, As a military necessity. It's actually issued that day or the next day as a military order, one of the general orders of the commander in chief. Lincoln, as I put it to my students, he turns a humanitarian end, emancipation, into a constitutional means in order to preserve the Union. He takes something that is uncontroversial, his job to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, and he turns it towards the controversial end at the time believe it or not which was can a president emancipate slaves not during a time of peace but certainly during a time of war on the amendment tip that only happens after emancipation and so in 1864 when the senate by two-thirds majority approves of an amendment lincoln is lobbying behind the scenes and we see some of that uh, mostly accurate in the daniel day lewis film by spielberg lincoln Uh, uh, the lobbying that Lincoln does behind the scenes to get Congress before the war is over. Um, 64, Senate passes it. The House, January 30th, two-thirds passes it. And then it goes to the states. Um, Lincoln thinks, as you put it, that it's a king's cure. It wraps the whole thing up. He wants to make sure that once the war is over, it's not just that you have emancipated individual men, women, and children. States could still have constitutions and laws in favor of slavery. Lincoln said, we've got to remove this from ever splitting the country again. And so he thinks at this point in time, the constitutional amendment will take it out of the hands of a Supreme Court. Uh, Taney doesn't die until October of 64, uh, but Lincoln wants it to be utterly off the nation's table and make the constitution fulfill the promise that was set forth in the declaration. So I would say in 64 in is when Lincoln is thinking about it, but it's not his idea. It was the idea of other individuals in the House and Senate, uh, and, and Lincoln does what he can as president to support it. Quick fact here, Lincoln actually signs the bill that became the 13th Amendment, and the, the Congress sends him a note reminding him, hey, according to the Constitution, the president has nothing to do with the passage or ratification of the 13th Amendment. Lincoln was like, uh-uh. I worked too hard on that behind the scenes. I'm putting my name on it.
0: (laughs) Uh, Does Lincoln, uh, I've got another question here about Frederick Douglass and his relationship. Oh, Frederick
1: Douglass, yay.
0: A fascinating relationship, of course, but look, if Lincoln has come around now to the idea of emancipation, including supporting an amendment to get rid of slavery once and, and, and forever and across the whole American United States and territories, um, The question is, why was Frederick Douglass so tough on Lincoln? Uh, At at first, Lincoln was not obviously an abolitionist in the strict sense of the word in the 1850s, even into the middle of the war. He becomes one when he realizes that it's possible now to pursue this justice through this legal means of constitutional amendment. Then why is someone like Frederick Douglass so tough on Lincoln? Or or did he change his mind?
1: Both. (laughs) It's one of those and, not or, but and. Um, he was very tough on Lincoln early in the war and even after emancipation. Tough because he, like many fellow abolitionists, perhaps all, wanted the war from the jump to be an abolition war. He said, "The Douglas, among others said, there's no way the South can win without the support of their slaves. Attack that and you will bring the Union war, the war for Union to a more uh, speedy conclusion. Uh, they weren't, as I say, as worried about the constitutional strictures regarding what a commander-in-chief can do about people's property, especially those who were loyal to the Union. The president doesn't have any authority over their property, uh, certainly not a president. And uh, so anyway, so Douglas didn't like the fact that Lincoln did not turn it into an abolition war. He didn't like that on March 4th, 1861, when Lincoln first becomes president. It's still peacetime, even though citizens of seven states don't think they belong to the United States anymore and don't owe it any obedience. Douglas says Lincoln's going to be a slave hound just like the rest of them. He promises that he doesn't, he tells us he doesn't have neither the inclination nor the power to touch slavery where it exists. And that's true under the Constitution. He did not during a time of peace. After the Emancipation Proclamation, he meets with Lincoln. Oh, uh, well, he meets with Lincoln um, in um, uh, the summer of 1863, and he's complaining to Lincoln that black soldiers are not being paid equally. He's complaining that Lincoln isn't retaliating for soldiers who are black who are captured and are being uh, either re-enslaved or executed or not being treated as prisoners of war. Uh, they're not being paid equally. So all of these things, Douglas, um, Douglas has on his mind, equality, equality, equality. What's with it, Mr. President? And it's later that Douglas appreciates the fact that Lincoln realized that had he been more um, quick to do those things if you will, unilaterally as president, as Douglas puts it, all the hatred poured on the Negro's head, Douglas's words, would be visited on the president's. And only later does Douglas really appreciate that Lincoln had to make preserving the Union the priority, and in so doing, bringing the emancipation into the fold. Now, the real question is why, as late as 1876, does Douglas call Lincoln preeminently uh, uh, the white man's president? But that's a, it, it's a, a curious statement for Douglas to make in that speech because in that speech it's almost as if we see Douglas growing in his appreciation of the president where Douglas himself finally concludes in the speech that even though Lincoln shared the prejudices of fellow whites, as Douglas puts it, but for that sympathy he had for people who looked like him, um, he would not have been able to accomplish emancipation or preservation of the union. And then Douglas has this wonderful paragraph which he concludes by saying viewed from the genuine abolition ground douglas's ground lincoln's actions towards black people in america were s- s- slow tardy dull and indifferent but viewed from the ground of a statesman as a statesman douglas says which lincoln was bound to respect in other words that majority white sentiment out there loyal white sentiment a sentiment he had to have in order to accomplish anything either it, let alone both of those great objectives, preserving the union and emancipating slaves, he says. Viewed from the from this the ground of a statesman, he said Lincoln's actions were swift, zealous, radical, and determined. So Douglas, and this is rare for a great man to admit, and Douglas was a great man, Frederick Douglass admits that Lincoln was right, that it was good that Lincoln wasn't an abolition president from the jump, that had he done so he would have torpedoed, most likely, not only emancipation, but any effort of keeping the union together.
0: Hmm. Fascinating. When we look at a statesman like Lincoln on this President's Day, um, there's a lot of folks who are really concerned that Americans today, too many Americans, especially perhaps young Americans, um, don't understand or in some ways reject the principles of our founding. Um If we want to try to restore the principles of our founding today in the hearts and minds of of our fellow Americans, what's what's a lesson that we can learn from Abraham Lincoln?
1: Lincoln's claim was that the way to deal with the crises of his day were by looking at how the founders dealt with it in their day. And so I think at beginning, uh, like you say, it's either we understand what's happening going on as people either misunderstanding the founding, or actually rejecting the founding. I'm gonna be charitable and say that they misunderstand rather than they reject outright or categorically. I don't think if you have a proper understanding of the founding that your conclusion would be, I hate equality, I hate government by consent, I disagree with the natural right of revolution, I don't believe in individual rights. I I think that portion of our population, Lord, I hope, is a smidgen. You can't even see the, the air or the light between my two fingers here. Uh, We need to better understand our founders. Um, Lincoln, I believe, was the most profound understander and defender of the founding. And so reading a lot more of Lincoln is a start. But if you want to cut to the chase, let's go back to the documents. Let's go back, in fact, to the debates. Let's go and see that it was a debate about what should be the principles that inform our institutions, our practices, What are the things that should guide us as we try to live up to? Whatever those principles are going forward. William Jefferson Clinton uh, as president in his first inaugural address, I think he put it well, and he borrowed this from uh, a Democratic president, borrowed it from a Republican president, Dwight Eisenhower, when he said, there is nothing wrong with this country that cannot be cured by what is right with this country. Let's figure out what our country got right. And then see how the things that were obviously wrong, what were the attempts made and how were the levers of freedom in our Constitution and in our Declaration maneuvered, uh, um, grasped, and employed on behalf of aligning our practices more closely with our profession.
0: Yeah, uh, that's a great call to return to the study of our founders, to return to the study of the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution washington jefferson madison among others a terrific call for us today on this president's day lincoln uh, lincoln's example of that being that kind of a student of the american founding and understanding our principles of equality and freedom and and uh, living them out as best we can as americans lucas thank you so much for joining us today terrific conversation absolutely wonderful um just want to let everybody know who's watching that you'll be sent a link Uh, of a recording of today's webinar. Please share it with your friends, your family, your colleagues, your children, your grandchildren, fellow teachers. We love to let them hear uh, the insights uh, that Dr. Morell has given us today. For more information on Ashbrook, uh, feel free to take a look at our website, ashbrook.org. For teachers out there, um, tah.org, teachingamericanhistory.org, a terrific, terrific resource. that you can use in your classrooms to do exactly what Lucas was talking about, have those kind of conversations about our founding and our founding documents. Let me also recommend to everybody the uh, Ashbrook podcast, The American Idea, where we try to have conversations, including with people like Lucas, about our great documents and debates that have defined America and who we are as Americans. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea, a production of the Ashbrook Center. We're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review and like, follow, or subscribe on your platform of choice. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. Thanks again for joining us.